Hello and welcome to this episode of the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. On this episode, we have a very special guest who represents a few different new things for us on our show. He's a senior missionary, which we haven't had on, and he's also a returned missionary from Africa, specifically the DR Congo, and has so much to share with us, and I just want to get right to the interview. So here is our interview with Dr. Jeffrey Bradshaw. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Jeffrey Bradshaw, who recently returned from a mission in the DR Congo, and we're going to get some interesting stories from him. And uh, kind of the way that I think I want to position this is back in the day, there used to be those things of people that would write a story, roll it up, and then stick it in a bottle when they were deserted on an island, right? And then they'd toss it, hoping that whoever found it would would have their wisdom as a, as a benefit. I think... This episode may serve to be that rolled up note uh, for the people that are serving senior missions and perhaps those even serving any mission in the DR Congo, but thank you for being here. Thank you, Nick. Uh, you have uh, you have a lot that you could talk about, and I, I was first introduced to this uh, subject on your presentation or at your presentation for Fair Mormon in August 2018. And you shared a lot of stories, and I hope people go on to Fair Mormon site to check that out. But uh, let's talk about how you came to even serve a mission there. When did you and your wife come to the idea that, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to serve a mission? Well, um, it, it came rather unexpectedly. Uh, we should, I should say that uh, we are, in some sense, a second-generation African missionaries. My parents went to West Africa right after the two fact-finding couples uh, came back and had wonderful experiences starting in 1980 and with a second mission uh, in uh, a little later in the 80s. And uh, But we thought we'll go on a mission when we retire. But uh, as things turned out, uh, came much sooner. We, we went one day to talk to our accountant because my brother was thinking about serving a mission. In fact, they served a mission in the Philippines same time we were out. And our accountant, who just returned from a mission, Doug Weaver, said, um, you know, you guys really ought to think about going earlier. Your, your health is good, and sometimes health and age limit you. And, and he said, I've seen so many couples that regret waiting too long to go, and then their opportunities are limited. So that night, after having talked to Doug on the phone about long-term picture, he'd kind of got my wheel spinning. I had a meeting uh, with, uh, afterwards, uh, the stake president and I were chatting in the foyer of the church, and he brought up the subject of a of Kathleen and I serving a mission with us, too. I thought that was a bit much, and so I agreed uh, that we'd pray about it, and a couple of days later we prayed, and the answer came very clearly. There were a lot of complications <laughs> given my work and interrupting <laughs> our lives, and then some some other family and personal things. But I, I really have to say, the Lord uh, really paved the way for us, and we have we are so grateful that we were able to go when and where we did. And you did you know beforehand? Uh, were you was this a prearranged kind of mission circumstance, or did you? get a call in the mail like anybody else that we, we see? We put in a regular mission application, and um, of course we, we noted just our love of Africa and our willingness to serve in, in remote places. But, but, but we said in the application just wherever and whenever we're needed. But in December uh, of that year, 2015, uh, our son sent us uh, one of the little, little box that had four or five missions where there were critical needs. 
And one of the needs there was uh, French speaking in the Congo. And it said, please, please, if you have any interest in serving here, uh, give this, call this phone number. I called the phone number and uh, the uh, brother who answered said, oh, you've got to talk to the mission president. And uh, I said, well, what's his name? And he said, Hervé Bayrel. And I said, well, I know him. It turned out, <laughs> turned out our son had served for many months uh, in the south of France uh, when he was serving as bishop in Aix-en-Provence. And uh, a few years later, my wife and I were in our young single adult reps uh, uh, for the couple for the young single adults in Toulouse, France. He helped us organize things like institute graduations and so forth. So we knew and loved the president. Who We talked to him and he said, well, you know, I'd sure love to have you here. I can't promise anything. It's not mine to give. It comes through inspiration like any other call. But he said, I'll, I'll just let people know of your interest. So there you go. it happened and we were thrilled. Now you served your proselyting mission younger in France, didn't you? Yeah, we serve, I served in 1975 to 1977 in the Belgian Brussels mission, okay. north of France, south of Belgium. In fact, our mission president there was kind of fun after we got our call because after he served, Virgil Parker served as our mission president. After he'd served uh, mission president there, he was uh, one of the ones who, he was really the first district president in Lubumbashi in DR Congo. So before we left, we had some great things to talk about. In fact, I saw him the other week. He's 93 years old, oh, just a little gosh. younger than President Nelson. And, uh, but still going. But still going. So that was a, a sweet experience to connect with him. We lived in France also two times uh, when our kids were growing up. So uh, we were comfortable with the language at least. Sure. How actually, how much French was spoken? Was that the dominant language? France is uh, one of the four, I had to think about that, for one of the four official languages of the country. And, and a lot of the business is conducted in French just yeah. because it's more widespread than some of the local languages. And in Kinshasa, at least, where we spent the majority of our time, most of the people will speak it. Some of the older women, especially, who don't get, didn't get a chance to go to school um, were handicapped in that regard, but that's uh, gradually disappearing, at least in the, in the larger cities. So you can get along pretty well with the knowledge of French. And, and even there's an amazing number of people who do speak English. So uh, I, would, I would say if, if language is a barrier... It doesn't have to be, uh, even for okay. for those who may not know the language very well. So you ended up starting your service when again? Was it July? Uh, we got there actually in Kinshasa after the, spending a couple of weeks at the MTC, uh, August 2016. Okay, and you just got back earlier this year. Yeah, um, we were in there your, two years. In your talk, you said that you actually made the transition home pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's uh, that's not a common thing for younger missionaries. Uh, do you think that that had something to do with the fact that you were a little bit more established in life and that travel has been much, you know, very much part of your, your career and things like that? Or Yeah, I think that that was it. We're, we're used to changing places. And even now, since we got home at the end of June, we've been living out of suitcase for four months while we wait to get settled. And, and we've just put in our mission papers to serve another mission where we're hoping that we can serve in the temple uh, there when it opens for a little while and help it get open. But yeah, uh, I, the, but, but what I was thinking when I said that was probably just life is so much easier and more convenient here <laughs> than it is there. Okay. But we miss the people terribly and sure. we love the people there. So one of the things that you sent, I would see some, some things that you would send out and the missionary work there is um, different than you might find in other parts of the world. Uh, one of the things that you pointed out was that church activity 
is actually quite high. What what is what is that activity rate or kind of speak to that and then what do you attribute that to? Yeah, so not only is the church growing very quickly there, uh, there's about 60,000 members, so it's really approaching the same size as South Africa where the church has been much longer, Yeah, approaching places like Ghana where the church has been established much relatively longer as well. Uh, but uh, as you say, the activity rate is high. I think um, it's, uh, well, we were told by Elder Koch that the uh, that it's the highest in the world so far as he knows, about oh. uh, double what you'd see in the United States, not to put a specific figure on it, but but we've been able to document that. And um, the retention rate uh, is, is, is uh, the highest in the world as well. Part of it is excellent leadership. And part of the excellent leadership, as far as at least the priesthood side goes, is that literally 50% of the membership, current membership, are Melchizedek priesthood men, hmm. which, uh, you know, is, is very unusual in many countries of the world, many international areas. Leadership, priesthood leadership struggles because the majority of the converts tend to be women. And uh, there you go into the congregation, you look around, and you got 70% who are who are very uh, committed Melchizedek priesthood-holding men, many of whom have returned from missions. So I think that accounts for a great deal of it besides just the fact that there's a great knowledge and understanding of the, of the scriptures, I think, that anchors them, as well as a very deep spiritual spirituality, uh, both in their conversions and afterwards. I think that they're very willing to be guided by the Spirit and make great sacrifices for the gospel. There is a temple finishing there. Yes. When was it announced? Was it while you were there? No, it was, oh boy, I should know this. I think it was 2011, 2012 during the administration oh, so that, of President Monson. That's taking a while then to, Took a to while. get. What, what, is that just local government kind of stuff or is, were there any particular things that kept that from moving forward quicker? Well, everything is, is a little more complicated there. It's true. Uh, it took a while to get the land and decide where it was going to be very choice piece of property. I wish now we had a little bigger spot. Hopefully someday there'll, there'll be a little bit more elbow room to, to do things. And then um, just the construction itself is more complex. Many things have to be shipped in. Shipping takes a long time. Sometimes the right parts don't come in. One of the temple construction missionaries, Elder and Sister Gates, uh, had to go through customs with these huge suitcases just full of nails because it was cheaper for them to fly to the U.S., get these suitcases full of nails and fly them back than to ship them. <laughs> That's crazy. And uh, uh, I don't want to say too much about this, but many things had to be redone multiple times. Mm -hmm. Originally, the hope was to do a very small and expensive temple as a prototype to see whether or not this type of temple could be built elsewhere cheaply, and it ended up taking literally twice as long as construction mm. and was more expensive because many things had to be redone more than once to get it right because, of course, temples need to be done right. Yeah. But it was very, very inspiring experiences, too. I'll just share one Yeah, that um, uh, Sister Gates related this to me the other day. One of the construction workers was away from a site for, the, for a day, and he had a dream about some holes in the baptismal font in a certain place. When he came back to the site, there were those holes that I guess weren't obvious uh, that right in the place he'd imagined them, so they had to tear up the baptismal font and redo it. But spiritual experiences like that happened all the time oh, to make okay. sure the temple was done correctly. Did people have to be endowed members of the church or anything like that to work on the temple, or how did they pick the local crew, or was it a local crew? I don't even know. Well, there's an works. interesting story behind that. No, there were many non-members who participated, but... Um, 
of the 30 who were there with the project, 30 or so who were with the project the whole time, about 20 of them were actually trained by the Gates who served, this is their third mission there, almost consecutive mission, Wow! who previously were called to train some construction workers, mainly for the number of chapels that were anticipated then. And then that never came to pass quite how it was, but here you had a number of people who they had trained, who now uh, worked with them uh, every day, who now were able to help with the temple. Very cool. So that was neat for them and yeah. neat for everyone. Well, and the people there learned a, a trade that they could parlay into other things. Absolutely. So, interesting. So you were called as an office couple, mm-hmm. and yet there was also a lot of opportunity for you to proselyte as well. And in one particular letter that I saw, you mentioned that there were Sundays that would happen where people would just be lining up to take the lessons, which sounds unreal to some missionary ears. Yeah. What, what was, flesh out that story a little bit. Yeah, as, as you saw that particular Sunday, I think it was just one or two Sundays after we got there, the mission president invited us to stay afterward after church and teach, and we didn't really know what that would be like. Uh, we had some excellent missionaries, but there were only two of them, and... Um, and so the mission president and his wife helped out that particular day, I think, where we took the pictures, and we were there helping out. Literally, during church, um, there were, uh, you know, a dozen or so investigators that had showed up, um, some of which were known to the missionaries, some that just were attending and mm. had been invited or had come in on their own. And, and so while we were uh, after church, uh, they would just wait patiently. We had three groups going <laughs> at that time, my wife and I with one of the missionaries and Sister Byrell with one and the mission president with another, and they waited patiently till their turn came to be taught. Overall, uh, we were we, in our mission, which is one of four missions in the region, uh, three in DR Congo and one in, I should just say, there's the Democratic Republic of the Congo, whose capital is Kinshasa, and then across the river, there's another Congo called Republic of Congo uh, with the capital of Brazzaville. Republic okay. of Congo was a French colony formerly. Democratic Republic of Congo was a French-speaking Belgian Congo. Uh, but at any rate, within those four missions, we were only one of those, but we were getting about 200 a month missionary, uh, not quite 200 a month baptisms uh, from a up to 150 missionaries. Wow. So it was just incredible, the growth yeah. uh, uh, that's going on. And there were so many good stories that you shared in that presentation of such great faith. And and I guess, is there is there one particular one that you could share that would help to kind of give a picture of what your experience was as a missionary there? Yeah. Boy, there's so many I could tell, but one I haven't really told that is really dear to my heart is the name as a young man we baptized. And I guess it's or we, we help teach and, and uh, were involved with for a long time afterwards. His name is Peter Lucasa. And um, he, like many of the people there, uh, was a, a young adult. He was unfortunately right over the missionary age of 26, so he never got to serve a mission. He, has, he won't get to serve a mission, uh, which is such a strength to so many of them. But, you know, people, when they're baptized there, these young adults, they just expect that they're going to serve a mission. It's just just, just, part they, of it. just part of it. So we have more missionaries serving outside the country than, than are sent to the country, which is incredible. Wow. The, uh, he was a very, very serious student of the gospel. He knew his Bible well. Again, I, part of the reason I'm telling his story is it's just so typical. And so we would, in the discussions, have to hit all the scriptural points that he'd hit as well as everything else. He had left his family in the Kasai, a region in central Congo, where there were a lot of wars going on. Even now? 
Even now, mm-hmm. yeah. Even now, there's militia and government and quasi-government forces and all kinds of other people who are profiteers and, and others. And, um, yeah, and in fact, his, his family were, were eventually refugees. He didn't hear them for, for months. But he, he came to Kinshasa to get an education. And, and um, when we met with him, I guess the other thing impressive besides his knowledge of the gospel was just his extreme faith. He, um, at the time, was working in a clothing store and hadn't been paid for about three months. But he continued to work there just because losing a job was so much, uh, was so terrible not being able to find one. Wow. And so he'd earn money here and there with the, or whatever he could do to earn, you know, 50 cents, whatever. And um, I was always worried about his economic status because, um, you know, he had nothing to live on. And, um, but, you know, I said, are you paying your tithing? And he said, yes, I am. And he pulled out his, his little phone and on it, every time he'd get 20 cents, 50 cents or whatever, he'd mark it there. So he would be sure every week to pay his tithing. Wow. And I, I was very touched by what he did. And I said, Peter, I know you're going to be okay as long as you're paying your tithing. He later lost that job and he hasn't found anything since. I, he didn't lose the job, but he decided he wasn't going to keep paying his transportation money right. to go work when he wasn't getting paid. But he was one of the last people we saw before we left, and he was had no place to live. He was literally staying with a, a policeman who was an alcoholic in oh, one geez. of his rooms and uh, was having very little to eat, was not really getting out of bed now most days, was staying and reading and praying. He didn't have the money to get to church, literally almost starving to death. I hardly knew what to say to him except to just keep praying for him and hope that things would turn up for him, a good, good young man. And that's an example of the dedication and faith of many of the people who joined the church there. It's incredible because we often, I want to say we often hear stories of people in developing nations and the, the struggles and the trials that they endure. And I've seen all those church reports, you know, the world report things that they do at general conference time, and they always seem to showcase some country in Africa or some just developing nation, I guess you could say. And it feels so distant sometimes because you're not there. You don't see it. But you've been there. You've seen it. In what ways might you be able to give a piece of advice to people that are heading to parts of the world where there's these sacrifices or happening quite a bit more common, I guess. You know, I I hear, I don't know if, for truth, that there are people who are called to serve in distant places, including Africa, and who, for whatever reasons, uh, don't accept those calls. And that makes me really sad. I, I want to just preface this by saying that we are never happier or healthier or uh, more joyful as a couple than we were working together there. We we really only were sick. I think one day we had you know a little bit of a cold or something like that. And I've been, as you can probably hear, uh, You're suffered now. from a cold two or three weeks <laughs> since we got back. It was great, and we felt very safe and calm. And the thing that I would say is that um, you really don't need to fear those things. In fact, uh, the other day I was uh, at BYU, and somebody came up to me and said that they had uh, there was a couple that was thinking about. They'd seen the need for the temple, and they were thinking of going there, but they just felt worried about their safety or worried about the food or different things. And I gave them this couple who knew them uh, my phone number. I said, just please, please call us because uh, you'll be amazed at at how you feel as a missionary there and how, of course, the church really tries to assure your security and your safety and puts water filters there and other things and how how, uh, you'll really have a great experience. There's really nothing to fear. 
while you're on a mission. In fact, there's just such great joy you can't imagine. My dad used to say it was like kind of the period you were in love. You, were, you felt like with the love you had for these converts, and you, he said he felt like it was when he was courting his, my mom, <laughs> that he felt like he was just walking on air sometimes, the love you felt for them and the love they gave you in return. Yeah. Is this going to be the first temple for them? It'll be the first temple. Okay. The fourth in Africa, Johannesburg has been there for the longest, yeah. and then there are temples in Nigeria and Ghana. And then this will be the first temple for a long time in, and the first French-speaking temple in, oh, in okay. Africa. Yeah. And then they just announced another one in Nigeria. Yes. At this last conference. So they used to have to travel to Johannesburg yes. for, for temple trips. That's right. And uh, how far a trip is that? It's about 2,000 miles, so it's quite a distance. So and maybe, what is that, uh, Utah to New York? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> About like that? It's a long ways yeah. culturally and, and geographically. Uh, most people um, who are in leadership positions uh, eventually are able to be helped by the Temple Patron Assistance Fund uh, that helps them get them and their families to get there. But there are some families, including one of my home teaching families, John and Guilin, that uh, we're never ever be sailed. He's a high counselor. He's a great man. And his wife was in the Stake Relief Society president. And they have four kids, three of which have served missions and one <laughs> of which is preparing to go. And they live in this small home, a very modest home. He teaches seminary every day of the week Wow! in his home for the last seven years to a group of youth from our ward there. But because he works for the military, he can't get permission to leave the country and go to the Johannesburg Temple. He and others who, uh, you know, there might be financial help for them uh, in some cases can't get out and do that. So I'm going to be very happy the day I hear yeah. that their family's sealed. That those who have gone have generally only gone one time, sometimes years ago. So you imagine the challenges of starting up a temple there where people have maybe been endowed when they went on their mission or some other time. Yeah. But... Uh, uh, the former the new temple president was telling them about another temple in that part of the world where the endowment session took about six hours because there was you couldn't help your neighbor with some of the proceedings if they got confused about clothing or oh. other things and so the the few couples that were there were were basically helping everybody and it took that long wow. to get things done. Well, that's okay though. But what joy for yeah. those people! Wow. So uh, I'll just say that you think, oh, now we have a temple in Kinshasa. Well. What people don't realize is it takes a day or two's wages for some people to come from one side of Kinshasa to the other. Mm. The average wage in the country is about $2 a day. So imagine transportation just coming. Yeah. Imagine the length of time, hours. This is a city of the largest French-speaking city in the world, 14 million people estimated. Wow. They haven't taken a census for many decades. <laughs> Uh, but uh, to get across there and then to get home before dark because it's dangerous to travel before dark, there's no church activities at dark, is going to be tough. That, yeah. So everything has to happen during the day if they have to take time off work or if they're not working, it's even worse. So I hope someday there'll be many temples in Kinshasa as President, as Elder Anderson alluded to in his groundbreaking talk and other places because the challenges are tremendous even with a temple in their own city. Yeah. I, did they say where that temple would serve? Like how many districts, stakes, and all that? Because I would imagine it's quite a large geographical area. That hasn't been announced yet, but okay. there are three missions in Congo, for example, 
which is a country the, li- the size of the western half of the United States, just to give you some feel for yeah. distance. There's also the Brazzaville Republic of Congo mission, which serves not only Republic of Congo, but Central African Republic, Gabon, uh, and uh, what am I forgetting? Uh, uh, Cameroon. Okay. No temple patron housing right now. Yeah. And a tremendous distances and challenges uh, for all those countries. So if you're a young missionary and you get a call there, is that something that happens or do they call people pretty much within the country? So I think in the past, 10 years ago, from what I understand, uh, there were a lot more missionaries from within the country, from within the two Congos that served in DR Congo. Now, and we, we were excited to see this, the area presidency recommended and, and uh, I guess we're, it was approved that they have more of a mix. Okay. In the DR Congo, there are no Western missionaries, uh, only African missionaries. From, from what I have observed, that's the only country in the world where there's nobody but, but Africans in the mission. That's because of some of the conditions in some parts of the country. Could, um, would you be willing to say if that's maybe part of why it's more successful? I think it is. They understand the people, the culture a little bit better? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. They are... The language the, even? The hearts and the language, Yeah. Very much so. Thank you. That's that's true. I was just going to add that one of the changes has been that now they're bringing in more English-speaking mission, missionaries. Among other responsibilities, my wife was responsible to help the, encourage the missionaries to learn English and to give them their certificates and test them and so forth. What would be the reasoning behind that? Uh, it's a blessing, employment-wise and in the church service, for the Congolese missionaries to learn English and obviously for these English-speaking African missionaries to learn French. Yeah. And, so, and, and also, the mix of cultures was a blessing to everybody as well. We were just really, really happy to see that come into play. It made a much stronger and, and mission as well as some, was a blessing to the missionaries. That's amazing. Well, um, I want to encourage people to go to, there's a series of articles that Jeff has put on the Interpreter Foundation's website documenting these stories and hopefully you said I think something about a a volume that you might be putting together it's a more longer uh, term maybe yeah and Uh, there will be some additional articles between now and the end of the year too we hope yeah so we'll put links to those as far as they've come out at the time of this recording and we want to encourage people to go check them out because there's pictures there's great stories incredible faith promoting stories and we'll also put a link to the content that's available from Fair Mormon showing that presentation which I re-listened to or re-watched this morning just to prep for it. And it was such an inspirational presentation to hear these stories and these trials and struggles, but the tremendous faith and obedience of these people is, is quite inspiring. So thank you very much for coming in, and thank you for being an example of the power and efficacy of senior couples throughout the world. My pleasure. And I just want to bear my testimony that this you can't help but go there and feel that this is the Lord's work and to feel that... Um, the African saints will be a blessing not only to their own people but to people throughout the world because of their faith and spiritual vitality. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank Jeff Bradshaw for coming in and sharing his experiences here on the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. We do have a link for his presentation at Fair Mormon. It's a video presentation with pictures, incredible stories. I highly, highly recommend that you go and follow the links that we have for the posting of this episode at ldsmissioncast.com. Find us on social media and follow the links 
to his presentation. There is an incredible story about how the people sought inspiration and how to live the principle of the fast. There are stories about how these people sacrificed so much just to be married and connected to one another in a very complicated culture with dowries and things like that. I I can't recommend enough his presentation. And again, find the links for it at ldsmissioncast.com. Please stay tuned. We are going to start some new things going on with the podcast that I think will be of great interest to all those who are interested in becoming a better, more educated, more trained, more energized, inspired missionary. So please stay tuned for that. We also have some great information coming out about Light the World, hashtag Light the World, that initiative that happens every year during holiday season. And I would like to announce that I myself am going to be going to Nigeria. I'm going to be there helping to film a documentary that I will also edit uh, on the life of one of the earliest missionaries, a pioneer of the church and his family and his descendants in the history of the church in Western Africa and Nigeria. It's an incredible story, and I can't wait to bring that to you at some point in the near future. But that also means that I'm going to be recording a future episode of the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast in Nigeria, in Africa, and I'll give you some updates of how that's going, some of the experiences that I've had, and some of the people that I've been able to meet. Hopefully, we'll be able to get them on the podcast, and uh, I, I hope we can bring that to you. We'll see. It's uh, It's been an interesting preparation, getting ready to go, all the shots and immunizations and visa requirements. It made me feel like a missionary that gets to serve a foreign mission, only I'm only going to be there for about 10 days. Either way, I'm excited to bring you guys that information, so stay tuned to the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. Thank you so much for listening.